0: Let's go before the Lord before we open up his word now. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us in manifold ways. Even this morning as I was coming to church, seeing the way that the uh, clouds um, kind of skim the perimeter of the mountains, we would have to be blind to not see your glory. And you've been so good to us because you've given us your word which exposes us, shines light into our hearts, has brought us back, has shown us the light of the world, namely even in Jesus Christ. It said that he was the light, and this light was actually the light of men. It gave us life. So come, Holy Spirit, illuminate the words that you have inspired to be written and bring glory to the Son of God. In his name we pray, amen. So you may have heard the quote made famous by Theodore Roosevelt. He said, uh, Comparison is the thief of joy. You heard this quote before. Comparison is the thief of joy. And in many ways, this is absolutely true. I, uh, I used to play in a band. And uh, in Tampa, Florida, there was actually quite a few bands that got really successful out of there. Uh, out of there. Uh, mine was not one of them. And so as you see, uh, your friend's bands start to taking off. Um, what should be a time to, to celebrate with them, actually, often is not the case. You become... Uh, Bitter and a little jealous, and it and it saps the joy out of what you're doing because comparison—it's it's it's the thief of joy in that context. Um, Or maybe as you get older, you see this more and more. I know I do. You uh, look at your life and you expected some things to look a little bit different, and then you meet a couple maybe at church or just in the workplace who has this amazing family, wonderful career, and it turns out that they're five or ten years younger than you, and so you compare your your situation, your age, with them, and it. Robs your joy, joy starts to to leak out. Or maybe you do have the family and you do have the career, uh, but now that has taken some of the um, dreams that you once had and put them on hold. And so now you spend the waning minutes of the night on your side in bed, scrolling through Instagram, looking at the unabashed adventures that all of your single friends are going. So I'm not the only one. Okay, that's good to good to know. Uh, so uh, comparison can be the thief of joy, and of course, social media is is the worst for this. Uh, Because you, like your friends, you only post the highlights of your week. But the problem is we always check when we're bored or discontent, so we are perpetually comparing our B-roll to the world's highlight reel. And so it steals our joy. And that's what makes what we learn from God's uh, word today so so interesting. It says that there is actually a kind of comparison that far from stealing our joy— is actually the foundation for our joy. Let me say that again. There is a kind of comparison that far from stealing your joy is actually the foundation of unshakable joy in the Christian life. If you are newer to Prism, we are in the middle of a series where we're going through 2 Corinthians for the entire year. Uh, It was written by a pastor named Paul to a young church that he had planted and stayed for a year and a half, and then he left. And after he left, new teachers had come in and they were starting to, to undermine Paul's authority and undermine the ministry that he had done there. And so Paul, like a good pastor, feels the need to, to defend himself, not because he is insecure about Paul, but because he loves his church and he wants them to have a deep confidence in the gospel that he had delivered. And often he even recounts the afflictions he had to go through in order to establish his credibility. In essence, he's saying, Humanly speaking, what possible motivation could I have for deceiving you? For instance, at the very beginning of the book in verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. Why would I lie to you? Or even just last week, he goes through a list of the different distresses that he faced. He said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why would I lie to you? You know me. You know the Jesus that I delivered is the truth. And this is suffering on a level that is difficult for us to imagine, but it is on the heels of these verses from last week that he pens one of the most illuminating and soul-stirring verses in the New Testament, one of my favorites. He says this, For this light, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The statement is amazing. Affliction, persecution, being given over to death is a light momentary affliction when he compares it to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for himself. So right here, we are at the very center of what perseverance looks like in the Christian life. How do you persevere in the Christian life? Well, Paul says you do it by comparing. See, when he would look at the scales of his life and he saw all of that on the one side and then he saw this weight of glory, it didn't even budge that. But this has more to do with just the simple steps to living a better uh, life now. Paul is going to show us how the gospel is actually the answer to the deepest longing of every person sitting in this chapel. So we don't just look at this weight of glory in order to get through this life, but it actually is, is the answer to our longings. It is the keystone of our experience. So, it seems to me that it would be important that we understand what that means when he says a weight of glory. What does that mean? So my desire is that when we leave this morning, we will have a clearer understanding of what Paul is talking about and have a deeper understanding of the longings that each one of us have in our hearts. So I have two main points for us today. The first one is this. Our deepest longing is to be reunited with God. Our, our deepest longing is is to be reunited with God. In the depths of your being, you have a longing that cannot be satisfied in this earth. Scripture speaks of this truth often, and in fact, it is the overarching theme of the entire scope of Scripture. God's pursuit of man, God's superseding our rebellious hearts and bringing us back to himself, because we were created for God. And so our longing is to be back in his presence. And this is what the gospel has accomplished. Verses 13 and 14 of today's text. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I speak. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Right, there it is. Knowing that he... That is God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise you and bring all of us with Jesus into the presence of God. So a quick backstory on what happened after the creation of man and woman that gave us this deep longing. When God created man, he bestowed on him the highest honor imaginable. He gave the creature the greatest glory that could be possessed. Namely, he put his image on us as men and women. You are an image bearer of God. In Genesis 126, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We are what is called the imago Dei, the image bearers of God. And we, are, and we were in perfect relationship with our God. And then the great tragedy happened. The man and the woman believed a lie. They believed that God was actually holding out on them, that he actually wasn't all good. And immediately that perfect relationship that we had with God was fractured. And so this is our dilemma. We were made for God, by God, with his image on us, but we can't stand his presence. This is the great dilemma of every human that's ever existed. They're an image bearer of God, and they're terrified of his presence. Genesis 3.8, And they, that is the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. And we still have a strong inclination to hide today. This is our dilemma God came to spend time with them, what seemed to be the most natural thing in the world, in the man and the woman. When they heard his presence, they hid themselves. And this is how Jesus puts it in John 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so this is the tension that we all live in. We were created for the light But through sin, it has a devastating effect then and now. It keeps us from wanting to come to the light. Uh, Earlier this week in community group, we had a a really wonderful discussion. We were talking about Christianity and psychology and and some of the uh, kind of perceived um, inconsistencies there and and, and what might be false dichotomies. And uh, Ben, who who is a therapist, he had an amazing insight. He was saying, as a Christian therapist— when he looks at some of the newer scientific research, which actually shows the, what he called, disintegration that happens in people's minds who get into habitual, destructive behavior, he says it's like peering in at the cellular level at the effects of the fall. He can literally see where there's misfirings and disintegration happening. And as a Christian therapist, he feels that his call is to come then and bring wholeness back to it, to enter into God's plan of redemption and bring restogra- uh, restoration to, to integrate what has been disintegrated. It's an amazing insight, and I was so encouraged by, by just hearing him speak so passionately about his call. Because despite the disfiguring and the distortion that the fall exacted on our souls, we are still image bearers of God. We can't get away from it. And that was what makes it so interesting when you see uh, some atheists who are very hostile to religion or Christianity give these impassioned cries of the un- disjustice, that's probably not a word, but you know what I'm saying, that religion has done through the ages. But what's ironic is they need to invoke the image of God in them to be upset at religion. So the more passionate they are about justice and about things being right, the more like a neon sign the Imago Dei is beaming from them because we can't get away from our creator. We were created by God. We were meant to be with God, and you even see it with those who deny God. They are always invoking a moral standard because it's stamped on their soul's because if they were consistent with their worldview, of course, they would know that we're just the accidental byproduct of ancient slime, and so even the m- misfirings in our brain are in a meaningless brain, and everything's meaningless. Well, nobody can live like that. It's because we have the image of God stamped on our souls, and we can't get away from it. Um, earlier this last week, I was uh, going on a hike around Griffith Park with a buddy of mine. Um, I knew him for many years in Florida. Uh, he's doing really well out here. He's lived in LA for a couple years, and he's he's not a believer. And uh, we were catching up, and he was telling me how business was going really well, and how he's getting married in a couple months. But then, in in a moment of kind of an unguarded existential moment, he said, "You know, but it's it's strange how you just never arrive. Like things have never been going better for me, and I just feel like I'm never getting to where I want to be." And he even said how he's like, "I think back of when we used to hang out years ago, and if I feel like if I could just go there, things would be so much better." But of course, if he went back there, he would experience the same longing. And in 1942, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, preached a sermon, actually, called The Weights of Glory, and this is one of the favorite things I have ever read, and so yes, I'm going to read a C.S. Lewis quote, and yes, it's going to be a long one, but I couldn't get rid of any of it because it's all so good, and it has changed the way I understand my soul in such a profound way. I'll send out an email earlier or later this week um, with it so you can uh, spend some time ruminating if you would like, um, but bear with me. This is so insightful. He pulls back the curtains of our soul and just starts shining a light. So we'll let Mr. Lewis speak for a moment. He says this in The Weight of Glory. If a trans-temporal, trans-finite good is our real destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes must be in some degree fallacious, must bear at best only a symbolical relation to what will truly satisfy. In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence, The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide but cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it it is a desire for something that has never actually happened in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. When he remembered, it would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty and the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the secret of a, uh, the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. He's speaking of the Enlightenment there. What an amazing insight. Our hearts were made for God. He is the ultimate object of our desire. He is the true north on the compass of our soul. And all the good gifts that he has given us in this world can only truly be enjoyed when we realize they aren't ultimate Themselves. And like he says, if we make them the ultimate thing, they turn into dumb idols and they break our hearts. We see this all over the place. You are not primarily a wife or primarily a sister or primarily a husband. You aren't primarily what you do. You aren't primarily a developer. You aren't primarily a janitor. You are first and foremost an image bearer of God. And that is what your heart longs for. And this is what the gospel is, friends. It's the good news that Christ did, came, and he did so much more than forgive our sins, right? You grew up answering the question, what is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Of course he did that. Of course that is part of the gospel. But that is just the starting point on an infinite line now. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has brought us back to God. Like a good carpenter, he took the wood from the cross and then he built a bridge with it, back to God. That's why there was a death and a resurrection. Jesus Christ has canceled our sins when we put our faith in him, but that wasn't the end game. It was to get us back to God. So don't take my word for it. Let's look again in our text. Verse 14. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. As I've said before, friends, we need an expansive view of, of what the gospel is. We need a deep heart-level understanding of you were forgiven for a reason, to be back in relationship with God. And right now we live in that tension of the uh, already but not yet, where we are now back with God, but we can't see him. And that is our goal, is to see the Lord. On the night before Jesus was to go to the cross, he actually prayed this very thing for you Specifically, and we know that he was praying for us here specifically because he says earlier in the chapter, I'm praying not just for the disciples, but for those who will come to believe through their word. And this is what Jesus prayed for you this morning, verse 24 Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of. Of the world. Jesus Christ prayed to the Father that you would be with him and could bask in his glory with him. Essentially, he prayed that the deepest longing of our souls would finally be satisfied. And then he saw to it that that could actually happen. And this is what we find Paul saying in the very next verse. As this gospel takes root in our hearts, we start to see outside of ourselves. We start to realize that we don't share the good news of Jesus out of a sense of duty primarily. We do it because all of our loved ones around us have a longing, and we have the treasure. We have the answer. If you see somebody dying of thirst and you have a water bottle, do you give them water out of duty? No. You give it to them to give them life, to satisfy their souls. This is what happens when we have an expansive view of the gospel. It's no longer a duty. It's delight, Paul says. For it is all for your sake. There it is so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Through Christ, God has now opened the floodgates of soul-satisfying grace. And for some mysterious reason, he's seen fit to pour it into jars of clay. Then have those jars of clay pour it into other jars of clay. That's how it's designed, friends. This is what it means to get the gospel. It's to share a treasure. So yes, our deepest longing is to be reunited with God, and we live in that tension. Number two, our temporal affliction produces eternal glory. Verse 16, so we do not lose hearts, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, one of the greatest practical helps of Christianity is this: There is no such thing as wasted pain. There is no such thing as wasted pain. In Christianity, that category does not exist. None of our pain is wasted here this morning. Right now, whatever you're going through, it is not wasted. In fact, Paul says, it's light and momentary. And we might say, well, Paul, you have no idea what happened this weekend in my family. Well, that's true. But he did know this. This is chapter 11. I had far greater labors far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes lest one, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that was a nice day. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from rogers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brethren, in toil, hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the church. This is Paul's predicaments. So how could the world in the world could Paul say that it's light and momentary? Well, of course, because of what he was comparing it to. He knew that the key to unshakable joy came actually through comparison. So the question must be asked. If this is a truth that is central to Christianity, what in the world is Paul talking about? It seems to me that it's important that we have a, a working mental image or definition for what a weight of glory is, because if not, what good is this if we can't actually have a practical use for it? So I'd like to try to bring some clarity. To begin with, the word glory in Hebrew literally means weightiness, a heaviness. So when the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it is speaking not just of his beauty and majesty, which it is, but also of his heavy reality pervading all of existence. That's why when we watch a sunset or we go for a hike and we just feel the sense of awe, there's a heaviness. That is glory. Glory is a weightiness on us. Even the name Yahweh, which was God's self-designated name in the Old Testament, literally meant in Hebrew the one who is. The ultimate reality. So whenever they would say Yahweh, in your Bible, whenever the word Lord is all caps, that's the word Yahweh. It every time means the one who is. This is the glory of God, the weightiness of God. And the problem for us as fallen creation is that sin has turned us into shadows who can no longer stand the weight of God's glory. This is the dilemma So we see this in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see God's glory. Moses said, "'Please show me your glory.' And God said, "'I will make all my goodness pass before you, "'and will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. "'And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, "'and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy.' But,' he said, "'You cannot see my face, "'for man shall not see my face and live.' And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by you, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. God said, Moses, you you can't see that now, because it will destroy you. Your your frame is too frail. It can't handle the weight of my glory. And this is really felt when we go back to Genesis 3, right? Right? The text we read earlier, it was God who came and was looking for man and woman to be in their presence, to be face-to-face with them. And they were the ones who hid. And now, tragedy of tragedies, the roles were reversed. It's the creature saying, I want to see you fully. And the creator saying, no, that's not possible unless you would be destroyed. And that's why we needed Jesus so desperately. That's why Jesus is always the hero. He allowed us to bear the weight of God's glory again. We needed him to regenerate our shadowy souls and make them new, make them solid. And that's what he did, John 1, 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now check this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace and grace because we could not get back to God God became a man and dwelt among us he wrapped all of his glory into a skin suit so that we would be able to behold his glory and wouldn't be crushed that is the grace upon grace it was the great turning point of human history God entered into history and offered offered to pour spiritual cement as it were back into our souls so that we could have a weight of glory. So how does this happen? Well, the Bible uses the language of what's called regeneration. It says that we need to be born again and be made a new creature. If you are a Christian this morning, that's exactly what has happened to you. You were once a shadowy soul, and then you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and in his resurrection, for the promise of new life. And he came and he made you a new creation. He bestowed on you a a weight of glory. You were a heavy creature again. You were solid. Colossians 3 speaks so stunningly about this new reality. It says, For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him In glory. How in the world will you be able to appear with him in glory? Well, it's because you will be clothed in his righteousness. You will be in the rock of ages. And going on from there, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The image of God will be fully restored on us again. In a very short amount of time, we will be with Christ in our glorified, resurrected bodies that feel completely at home, dwelling in the full strength of the glory of the eternal God. This is the gospel. This is the weight of glory that Paul is telling us to compare our current afflictions to. This is how comparison, in this sense, far from being the thief of joy, is the foundation for unshakable joy in the Christian life. I hope this gives us a better understanding of what the language of glory means. I hope whenever you see that word in the Bible again, it will have new lights, a weightiness. However, if you are an observant reader, you'll notice that I haven't quite finished dealing with Paul, what, what Paul actually said. He doesn't just say that all of our afflictions are light and momentary compared to the weight of glory. He actually says they produce for us a weight of glory, that all of our hardships are Producing for us a weight of glory. So, what on earth does that mean? Well, if you follow me on, on Instagram, uh, you may have known that I have started doing some woodworking. And uh, this past week, I was working on this amazing piece of acacia wood that I got from a guy who's, who's mentoring me. And so, when I was picking it up from him, he, uh, I was taking it out and he was giving me some tips on, on what to do. And then he said, And you see those parts there, and I wouldn't have seen them. He said, Those are actually rotted. And so what you're going to have to do is take a chisel and a hammer and dig out the rotted parts and all of it, or it won't work. And once you do that, you can take this substance, which is called epoxy, and then slowly go to all those parts and pour it in. And what the epoxy does then is it, is it hardens, and it's perfectly clear so that it's gorgeous. You can see all the detail through it. And when that's all done and dried, Once you've gotten all the rot out, it is now a solid piece. You might say it's a glorious piece now, a weighty piece. And that's what suffering does in our lives, friends. It's the chisel that God uses to get out that old stuff. And it is hard. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. Because when Jesus saved you, he made you positionally right with God, But the problem for us is he's actually serious about seeing that come about on this earth. And it's painful. It takes great pressure. I know my own soul. It's unbelievable. As John Calvin once said, uh, the more you desire to be holy, the more unholy you start to see that you are. (laughs) Something like that. Um, And it's so true. See, if, if, if you didn't know that my piece of acacia had rotten it, and you just saw me digging with a chisel into this amazing piece of wood, you'd say, what are you doing? You're destroying the thing. It's beautiful, and you're messing it up. But if you knew that it actually had rotten it, and I needed to get that out and fill it with something solid before it could be glorious, you would then see that as not cruel or harsh or meaningless. You'd see that as incredibly helpful. In fact, you would say it would be very unloving if I disregarded that and tried to pawn it off as a beautiful piece of furniture, it'd be a phony. It needs to be glorious. It needs to be weighty. That's the gospel, friends. The problem is, it takes faith for us to believe this. And Paul knew that. So he ends with a very practical help. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we need to look with the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of faith, and know that this is what the Lord is doing. But this isn't some blind faith. This is a faith that has seen in a thousand ways the faithfulness of God, the working of your spirit in his life, the reliability of scripture time and time again. And so we look to the things. That are unseen and knowing that they are glorious and that God really is preparing us to bear this weight of glory. The deep longing that we all have will soon be satisfied when we are raised with Christ and brought into his presence. And we will be well dressed for that ceremony now. Let's pray. Father in heaven,